Stuart Holman here. Good to be with you again as this week our Growing Disciples devotionals come from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. As we've been working our way through the whole Bible in a year, this is what happened next after the exile. You might recall that Jerusalem was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 597 and then again in 586 BC. But then after the Persians had conquered Babylon, in 538 BC, King Cyrus gave the Jews permission to return to Jerusalem. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as the book of Esther, all come from this same time period. Some, but not all, the Jewish exiles are returning to Jerusalem to rebuild. But they're very much still under the rule of a foreign king, still very vulnerable. Persian kings like Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes still wield enormous power over God's people. And yet, we know that God is at work bringing about his purposes of restoration, even though uh, at this time it doesn't look very impressive. It's especially underwhelming when we consider the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They had announced and the people were expecting a, a kind of a new exodus event out of Babylon with the, the people returning to Jerusalem to worship God at the rebuilt Jerusalem temple filled with the glorious presence of God under a new King David uh, in the midst of a renewed promised land. At least that was their hope. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book put together by a single editor. And, and so it's helpful to read them consecutively, which is what we're going to be doing this week. And when we read them this way, there are some patterns which emerge. I don't think they're strong or compelling literary patterns, but I think they do help us get a, a useful handle on the book. So first of all, these books cover the work of three great leaders of the returning exiles, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So that's the book of Ezra, chapters one through six for Zerubbabel, chapters seven through 10 for Ezra, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah's chapter one through seven. And then finally in the book of Nehemiah, chapters eight through 12, there are a series of narratives that show us the outcomes of the work of those three great leaders. Here are some positive outcomes, some negatives, and then a kind of conclusion to it all. And the loose kind of pattern that we see with each successive leader begins with a Persian king making a decree of some kind. But the remarkable thing is that each decree seems to be calling God's people to do exactly what God would want. And so Ezra chapter 1 begins this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of King Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. 
we're not told uh, exactly why Cyrus decides that the temple of Jerusalem should be rebuilt, but he simply decrees that any of the Jews who want to are free to return to Jerusalem and do the job. Uh, later, we find that Cyrus contributes to the costs and even returns the contents of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen when he destroyed the place. And so begins the story of the rebuilding of the temple, which initially seems to be entrusted to a guy called Sheshbazzar, with Zerubbabel as one of his assistants. Uh, however, by the time the Jews have returned to Jerusalem and got themselves organised, Zerubbabel seems to be leading the rebuilding and the people, with a priest uh, named Joshua as his, his wingman. So that's the first decree from a Persian king that drives the story of the return from exile along. The second decree is made by Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 7. Uh, there were three Persian kings named Artaxerxes in a very short period of time, as well as King Xerxes, uh, whom we think is the one who married Esther. And so the precise history is a little muddy. But the key thing for our purposes here is that, once again, a Persian king makes a decree which seems to significantly further the purposes of God. So in Ezra 7, Artaxerxes decrees that one of the brightest and best of Israel's priests, Ezra, should return to Jerusalem to teach the people the law of Moses and help the people to obey it. The second great phase of these twin books therefore begins like this in Ezra 7. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So the work of this priest, Ezra, begins in Jerusalem at the behest of the king. And then, once again, the work of Nehemiah also begins at the command of King Artaxerxes, probably the same king who sent Ezra to Jerusalem. Now, after much prayer and fasting, Nehemiah plucks up courage to ask Artaxerxes for help. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, he writes, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. And just for good measure, Nehemiah also asks for letters of authority from the king, for safe conduct, for building materials, and a military escort of officers from the army uh, and the cavalry. And the king is very happy to provide all of it. 
pretty incredible, right? So the work of each of the three great leaders of the returning exiles begins with a royal decree. Each decree seems to be enacting exactly what God would want. Each Persian king is shown to be putty in the hands of the living God. There are more elements to this pattern, but for today, let's take a moment to consider the significance of these Persian kings doing the will and the work of God. You see, even at a time when God's people seem at their weakest and most vulnerable, when they're still slaves in a foreign land, God is at work. I'm going to talk more about the theme of work throughout this book, but notice each main section begins with God at work, bending the wills of the kings to do his work. I'm sure if we could interview Cyrus and Artaxerxes, they'd tell us that rebuilding Jerusalem and renewing the temple was their own idea. But we know that God was behind all of their great ideas. So ponder with me for a moment the truth that today nothing has changed. The kings and the rulers of nations and superpowers are entirely accountable to God and they are doing his bidding, even though they may be entirely unaware of it. And because we are so limited in our knowledge of God and of his ways and his plans, we won't always know exactly what God is up to. But we can be assured that he is in control of Xi Jinping and Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and Scott Morrison and whomever else we think is running the show. So following Nehemiah's lead, we should pray for these people, for leaders of every nation, that God would work in them and through them that their decisions will be his decisions. It's not my place to say whether they're good or bad leaders or whether their rule is positive or negative, but what I do know is that God will use their power to bring about his ultimate kingdom rule. Uh, like the beasts of Revelation, they are never out of God's control or beyond his reach. Instead, God is King of kings and Lord of lords, trustworthy and true, even in the midst of messy human kingdoms in conflict, even with each other. We should pray that God's kingdom would advance, even through the rule of human leaders.